All right, let's open to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And as you find Romans 9, I'm going, we're going to begin exposition in verse 17, but I'm going to give you a brief catch-up um, because we are starting in the middle of this chapter just to get a little momentum. Uh, I'm sure that you do remember what we're dealing with. It, it, we talked a lot about this matter of election and how, why God chooses uh, certain people and why He doesn't choose others. And it, we talked a lot about the conditional nature behind God's election or His choosing. Garrett did a wonderful job. Wow, Wednesday, great lesson in Ephesians, and he explained it so well. Um, if you have questions about this topic, I would really suggest you go and listen to what he had to say about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, 5, and right, right about in there, did a wonderful job of dealing with this. We're going to deal with it a little bit more tonight. Um, let me just say, if you, if you want to read up on this on your own, this, this book right here by John Lennox is called Determined to Believe with a question mark. It is the best book that I've ever read that deals with this subject of what, what a lot of people call Calvinism. He refers to it as determinism. Uh, some people take offense to the use of the name Calvin. And uh, so he's, and, and I, I appreciate the way he approaches the subject. A determinist is somebody who believes that God randomly, unconditionally chose uh, for certain people to be blessed and others to be banished. A great book. Absolutely wonderful book. Well worth whatever you need to spend to get it into your library. All right, Romans chapter 9. And uh, before we go any further, let's go ahead and pray and then we will continue. Father, Thank you, what a blessing to be able to sing about the sweet by and by. And we look forward to that day when we can stand on that beautiful shore and sing the melodious song of the blessed. Lord, to hear the angels and the seraphim and the cherubim cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We, we desperately want that day. But Father, while we're here, we're enjoying our time with you. I pray that you'd allow the Spirit of God to guide us now. Oh, please help me to teach. I need your help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and find Deuteronomy. Uh, keep Romans 9, but get Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. And let me give you a few comments just to get you caught up here. Uh, last week, as we got the first half of Romans 9, here are a couple of things that Paul covered in great detail. And this is, kind of, this is the theme of Romans 9, 10, and 11. What is God doing with Israel now, right now? We know that the body of Christ is God's primary focus. Does this mean that He's completely finished with Israel? Does this mean they're no longer chosen? Does this mean God's promises to the nation of Israel are null and void? And Paul takes time in these chapters to answer the questions as to how God is working with the nation of Israel at this time. Are they still His chosen people? The answer is undoubtedly yes. You'll see that as we go through these three chapters in Romans. And, and even Deuteronomy, you'll see here some... I believe Paul probably got it, got his teaching from, from the passage we're going to look at. Um, so Paul covered... Why Israel will always be special and always be God's chosen people? It's not because of their behavior. It's because of God's promise. 
You've got to, you've got to see that. It's because God promised it. And then the second thing that Paul touched on in Romans 9, we covered it last week. Why did God choose them? All right, fine, they're always going to be God's chosen people. He promised it so. But why them? Why not some other group? And we showed you last week several verses where mankind does have the ability to choose. We have a free will. But God knows beforehand what we will choose. So God, He made decisions. He made promises. He made plans based off of His foreknowledge. His election, His choosing is not unconditional. It's based off foreknowledge. Uh, let's look at Deuteronomy 9 quickly, and then I'll point out one other thing that Paul is doing. Deuteronomy 9, and look with me starting at verse number 4. Now, Moses is preparing them to enter into the promised land. He says, God's going to conquer all your enemies. Verse 4, Speak not thou in thine heart. After that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out from before thee. Verse 5, Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. And that he may, watch it, perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see the emphasis? Israel, you're being blessed not because of your behavior, but in spite of it. The reason God is casting these nations out and allowing you to take the land, number one, they deserve to be punished. It's a just thing that God is allowing to happen. And number two, God promised, God promised, He sware to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that He would give Israel this land. It is, it is a fulfillment of promise. Now, come back to the book of Romans. Keep Romans 9 and just look at Romans 4 quickly. I'm just, like I said, laying a little groundwork, getting some momentum here. Romans 4 and verse 16. Romans 4 verse 16. So here's another thing that Paul is doing, I believe, in, in Romans 9. He is speaking about Israel as a nation. And he's explaining to us why God chose them and how God chooses to bless and, and punish various people. But the way that God deals with Israel as a nation, Paul is going to use that as an example to drive home a point about how he works with individuals even now. Uh, let, let me show you this just quickly. Romans 4, verse 16. Now watch the wording here. Therefore it is of faith, that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. How can we be sure that things are going to work out the way that, that they should? How do I know that I'm going to have eternal life? Not because of my behavior, but because of God's promise. I have chosen, right? I've humbled myself and by faith accepted what God said about me, that I'm not good enough to be saved but through my own works, but through the work of Christ. I've accepted that. I've fallen in line with His plan. And because I've fallen in line with what God promised, then I, it, it's a, I have a sure outcome. Now, look at Romans 9, and look at verse 11. 
Watch the wording. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. The, the reason I showed you Romans 4.16 is because I believe Paul's driving home the same point. How can it be sure? How can it stand? Because it's not based, the outcome is not based on behavior. It's based on God's promise. Now, that being said, God promised the nation of Israel. You're the chosen people. You're going to have the land. However, however, look at Romans 9 verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So you can see in that one verse, Paul recognizes that God promised the nation something, but then individual choices and behavior, that does make a difference, right? If a person chooses not to fall in line with the plan of God, then there are consequences for that. Somebody falls in line with his covenant or his promise, then they can be sure about the outcome. Right, so that, like I said, just trying to set the scene for what we've been dealing with. Now verse number, let's begin reading at verse 15. It says here, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 33. This is something that God told Moses in that chapter. Verse 16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. So it doesn't matter how great your plan is. doesn't matter how hard you try. But of God that showeth mercy. You have to fall in line with God's stipulations for distributing, or distributing mercy. Verse 17. Now here's the other side to the coin. If you want to be blessed, God has a plan for blessing people. 16, 15 and 16. Verse 17. But if you want to be, if you want to be punished, other side of the coin, there's another way for that. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. If somebody looks at what God has said, God promised, if you're merciful, I'll show you mercy. God promised in the book of Hosea, if you sow to yourselves in righteousness, if you sow righteousness rather, then you will reap in mercy. He told people what to do in order to find mercy. Now, that see, God made that plan. He had that plan before the foundation of the world. God he loves righteousness and hates iniquity. So he had already foreordained that if a person acts and chooses these kind of things, then this is what they're going to get. And God's allowed to do that. God is making these promises based on his nature. It's fair. It's equal. If somebody chooses to go against that, that righteousness that God desires, then God can punish that person. And in Pharaoh's case... He can harden his heart. That's a punishment. It's not to say that God made Pharaoh from the beginning with a hard heart. But it was because of Pharaoh's choices that God punished him by hardening his heart over and over again. Now, God knew what kind of person Pharaoh would be. God knew that he would be this evil, vicious taskmaster. And he knew that if I allow this man into power, he will treat my chosen nation a certain way, 
and that in due time, because Pharaoh is going to be such a difficult person and reject the uh, legitimate offer that God is making to, to cooperate with the plan, because Pharaoh is going to reject it, God is going to have an opportunity to manifest his power. And uh, so he allows, he raises him up so he can knock him down. It's not that God made Pharaoh choose these wicked things, but because he knew Pharaoh would choose them, therefore God said, okay, I'll let him rise to power because I know, I know that he will go against what Moses and Aaron are doing and saying, and then I will be justified in removing him with a strong and mighty hand, and I'll exercise my power that way. Now there's a lot of questions that come with this passage about God hardening Pharaoh. So we're going to take a few minutes and look at this. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, please. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. You know what? Forgive me. Um, let me get a different verse here. We'll be in Exodus 3 in just a moment. Get Exodus 9. Let's start there. Let me show you the cross-reference that Paul quoted so he just gave us Exodus 33, I think it's verse 19, is that right? Yes. Uh, that's about having mercy and compassion on whom he will. And then he goes to Exodus 9, look at verse 16. Verse 16, this is Moses speaking on the behalf of God. And he says, And in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, Ta talking to Pharaoh, obviously, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. So God says, I know what kind of person you are going to be. That's why I've allowed you to achieve this position. And then God says, I'm going to use your wickedness as an example of what God approves, what God disapproves of. And people, we still to this day talk about God's mighty power and His way to, His, His ability to overcome the enemy. Just let this sink in for a second. Look at the world around us, right? If you think it was bad with Pharaoh, wait till the Antichrist shows up. What you had in Egypt, that's going to be going on all over the world. Why would God allow such wicked people to rise to power, uh, to positions of power in the world? Because Jesus, God knew that these people were going to be this way, right? So he allows them to rise up, but one day Jesus comes back, overcomes them, and in so doing, the common man looks, looks, looks up and says, now, now we know who has the power. So in this way, God, God has allowed man to freely choose the way he wants to be, but God has also chosen how he's going to react to their wickedness. God can even use their wickedness. It's not, it's not the way God wants to get glory. We talked about that in Romans 3, but he can certainly get glory. While we're in Exodus 9, look with me at verse number 17. Look what Moses said next to him. As yet exaltest thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go? Now isn't that a strange thing to say? God says to him, Pharaoh, you're exalting yourself. But in the verse before it, he says, I've raised thee up. I brought you to this position of power, but Pharaoh, you're exalting yourself. Do you see there's two things at work here? There's man's choice. Pharaoh hardening his own heart, exalting himself, lifting himself up with pride. That's part of it. But then God's part as well. God said, okay, you want to harden your heart? You, you don't want light? You want darkness? I'll give you more 
and more darkness. You like a hard heart? I'll give you more and more reasons to have a hard heart. Uh, come back to Exodus chapter 3 now. Let's, let's run this through bit by bit. Exodus 3, get verse 19. All right, Exodus 3, verse 19. God speaking to Moses. He says, And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. God knew beforehand how Pharaoh would react. It doesn't say that God made Pharaoh choose these things. It just says that God knew it would happen. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. You say, well, then God, God's forcing Pharaoh to choose one thing or the other. You'll see in just a moment what God did to fulfill this to have the hardening of the heart. I'm I'm just showing you all the Scripture that's connected with it. God knew how Pharaoh would react to what was about to happen. Now look at chapter 5. Chapter 5. Look at verse 1. And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Now there is a legitimate offer. If Pharaoh wanted, he could have said, All right, I respect that. I will let you go and do what God said. But look at the reaction. Verse 2, And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. There's your hard heart. God has not hardened it yet. That's Pharaoh making a choice of how he wanted to react to God. Now, the rest of the chapter, in in chapter 5, it deals with the making of the bricks and things get a little worse for Israel before they get better. But come on to chapter 7. This is where the miracles begin and the, the uh, plagues and so forth. Uh, chapter 7 and get verse number 13. Chapter 7 and verse 13. Now what you have in this story, Aaron throws down his rod, it becomes a serpent. right? And then the magicians of Egypt throw down their rods, they become serpents. And as the story goes, Aaron's rod, that, that serpent swallows up the other ones. Aaron takes it again, and it's a rod in his hand. Pharaoh watches that, right? Just look at verse 11. Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. What did the Lord use to harden his heart? Did God reach down into his heart and flip a switch and say, you're not going to believe that? There's nothing in the Bible that indicates God's ever done that. As best I can see, God always uses something external, something from outside of the person. God allowed the magicians of Egypt to pull off a similar miracle or a copycat miracle to that of Aaron. And it was that, Pharaoh witnessing that event, that is what hardened him. Pharaoh said, well, my, my magicians can do what yours did. So what if your serpent ate ours? That, who cares? But we can also do these fancy tricks. And that is what hardened Pharaoh's heart. God knew, God knew what would cause Pharaoh 
to continually ignore the word. Why? Because Pharaoh initially rejected the legitimate offer to get on, on board with God's plan. You look at it again in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, so they had a plague going on, now things have calmed down, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Do you, do you notice the wording there? The other verses, God said, I'll harden his heart. This time, the Lord, he removed the frogs, and it says when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Is the Lord doing it? Well, the Lord is allowing these miracles to take place. He's, he's pulling back the frogs. He's doing, he's doing what's necessary so that Pharaoh will continually go down this wrong path because Pharaoh had a wicked heart. This is a just punishment for this man. Look at verse 32. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at that time also, neither would he let the people go. So man has a part in this, and God has a part in this. Man makes a choice, and then God says there are consequences for that choice. You reap what you sow. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's sowing, it's reaping. God reacts to our decisions. Look, take your Bible. I want to show you this clearly. Look at Isaiah chapter 66. We saw this last week. I want to, I want to point it out real strong here. Isaiah 66. And then I'm going to show you a couple other uh, passages that we didn't look at. I just want to show you the reactionary nature of the Lord. Isaiah 66 and get verse number 3. Just look at the end of verse 3. Isaiah 66 verse 3. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. Verse 4, God said, I also will choose their delusions. The people of Israel had rejected God's word, the light of the law. God said, you don't want light, you don't want truth, I'll give you darkness, I'll give you a lie. I will choose the delusions. God knew what would trick and mess up these people. And He allowed these idols to come into the land. Not because God likes that, because that's what these people deserved. They deserved the false prophets. They deserved the wicked kings. Take your Bible, look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Now, if, if Isaiah didn't convince you, well, I hope this one does, because this is pretty clear. Ezekiel chapter 14, and let's begin at verse 1. We're gonna, I'm going to read quickly. You follow along quickly as well. Ezekiel 14, verse 1. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart, and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face, should I be inquired of at all by them? Oh, please notice here. As these men came to the prophet, they wanted to know, what did God say? Tell us, preacher, what did God say? And God said, I know what's going on in their heart. They have already set up an idol in their heart, and they've set up a physical idol before their face. Do you see that God, this is exactly how He dealt with Pharaoh. He knew what kind of idol, what kind of pride was in Pharaoh's heart. So look at how God deals with this man. Verse 4, Therefore speak unto them, 
and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this guy exactly what he deserves. He doesn't want truth. He wants an answer that will make him feel good about his present condition. That's why you have to be very careful when you approach God with a Bible question. You better be ready for Him to tell you the truth. Say, God, I'll adjust to whatever you show me. Verse 5, let's keep going. That I may take the house of Israel in their own heart. You see, not in God's foreordained plan, but because of their heart. That I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Verse 6, therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, repent and turn yourselves from your idols. Wow! Turn yourselves? How does that work if you believe that somebody dead in sins is unable to make any right choice to go towards God? God said, repent and turn yourselves. Repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away uh, uh, your faces from all your abominations. Verse 7, For every one of the house of Israel or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me, and setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. Verse 8, And I will set my face against that man, and will make him a sign and a proverb. Do you see how this sounds like Pharaoh? I'm going to use him as a symbol. People will be talking about this for centuries, about how God's power was manifested to overcome this wickedness. Same, this is on a smaller level, but it's the same principle. Verse 8 in the middle, And I will cut him off from the midst of my people, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Watch verse 9, And if the prophet be deceived when he hath spoken a thing, I the Lord have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of my people, Israel. God said, I deceived him. If somebody sets up an idol in their heart, goes to a preacher and says, please tell me what God said. And then that prophet, maybe in this case a false prophet, tells that person, yeah, it's perfectly fine to have that idol. Listen, you have your way. There's other ways to go about it, but, but you're fine. Where did that prophet get that idea? God allowed that prophet to go on with that nonsense and to say that to the people. God brought that nonsense, that prophet's way, so that these people could get the punishment they deserve. Verse 10, And they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. You see, it's a punishment. It's a reaction. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeketh unto him. You see, the same way that the people got deceived. They wanted a lie. They already had the idol in their heart. That's exactly what happened with the prophet in, in the beginning of his problems. How did that prophet get messed up? He had his own idol in his heart. Let's, uh, let's come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've already seen in Romans 1, there's a very good passage for this, but we've seen that before, so I'm going to bypass showing you that again. Uh, let's come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, 
All right, 2 Thessalonians 2, look with me starting in verse number 9. Now here we're dealing with the Antichrist. I'm telling you, all this works together, works in the same by the same principle. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Why would God allow this horrible man of sin to be revealed? Verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Why did God allow this man to come with lying wonders and to deceive the people? Because God initially offered them the love of the truth. They rejected it. God said, you don't want light, you're going to get lightning. Verse 11, and for this cause. What is the cause of these people being punished? Not because God unconditionally reprobated them from the foundation of the world. It's because of their decision to reject the truth. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. Isaiah 66, I will choose their delusion. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned. Why? Because God foreordained it? No. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So what I hope you've seen here is God is reactionary. Yes, God had a plan. He had system set up from the foundation of the world. If you fall into this category, if you decide, if you choose to uh, believe and act a certain way, then there's mercy, blessing, compassion. But if you want to go about it with a hard heart and rebel against God, then God's going to react this way. Come back to Romans 9, and let's keep working our way through the passage. Verse number 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? These are the questions of the people that would not understand what Paul is teaching. These are the questions of Paul's opposition. They would say, well, if God just has mercy wherever He wants, and God just hardens whoever He wants, then how can God judge anybody? Why does He find fault if God made it happen? Because doesn't everybody have to do the will of God? Who has resisted His will? That's, that's the misconception that certain people would have about God. And Paul knew that people would ask this sort of question. And that's why Paul's explaining it the way he is. Verse 20 uh, in verse 20, Paul says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that reply against, uh, repliest against God? Paul's going to go on to say, You're, You don't even have the right to ask such a question. Now, first, let's deal with verse 19. We'll be in verse 20 just now, but who hath resisted his will? Lots of people. Lots of people. Let, let's try this one. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. How about this one? 1 Thessalonians 5. And in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. It's the will of God that in everything you give thanks. Have you always done that? I haven't. This is a, this is a clear one. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How many people have resisted that will? God's will can be resisted. If somebody approaches this topic, and if they come to Romans chapter 9 with a preconceived notion that when God makes a plan, it's going to happen exactly the way God planned it, that God did not plan out all of our choices. Right? God planned how He would react to our choices. You see? God did not make any plan that says, I have to choose one thing or the other. That's a misconception that would cause confusion. Verse 20, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? He said, you think that God is unjust and that God is, is punishing Pharaoh improperly. You don't think that God has the right to do that. Shall the thing formed say, uh, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? So the thing formed, looking up at its creator, saying, now why did you make me like this? That's a, that's a false accusation. That thing, in this case, that human being, right? That's what Paul's referring to. That person. It, they have no right to look up to God and say, why did you make me like this? Because God would say, no, no, you made yourself like this. You are reaping what you sowed. I extended a, a legitimate offer of truth, love, mercy. I showed you the right path. You turned it down. Now you're getting what you deserve. And that's why nobody can blame God for their wickedness. Uh, verse number 21. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump? Now the, that lump, that'll be mankind. Right, Adam and Eve, you can think of it as that lump, or even just Adam, if you want to look at that, of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Can't God put exterior, I want to say things, roadblocks? Can God, can God put detours in a person's life that would lead one person down the path of destruction and punishment and another person down the path of righteousness and blessing? Yes, Yes, he can. God can, with one lump from, from mankind, which, by the way, God made man upright. That's the will of God, to be upright. But then man sought out many inventions. The book of Ecclesiastes says that. So God can take that same lump. He desired it to be, it was in his image. If that lump chooses one thing or the other, then they go down those paths. God, once that person chooses correctly, they keep going down this path of mercy and compassion. You say, what about the guy that's on the wrong path, a hard heart? At any moment, he can repent and turn himself. Remember that from Ezekiel? He can repent and turn himself. He can acknowledge the truth, 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. And the Bible says, recover himself out of the snare of the devil. Good passage to check out, 2 Timothy 2, verses 25 and 26. Now look at this. Hath the potter power over the clay? Yes, the potter does have power over the clay. Now, hold your place here. Get Jeremiah chapter 18. Paul has mentioned the potter, so we're going to go down to the potter's house. Jeremiah chapter 18. Now, as you guys can probably tell, I speak with a little bit of passion on this subject because before I got saved, I was very confused um, with this topic. 
And since I've been saved, I've known a lot of people. Now listen, there's, I've known several people that are Calvinist and they love God. And they have, they have a, a great heart. However, I've also seen this doctrine confuse some people. And it, it, it actually, they have this skewed version of God. This, this Pharaoh-like God that just forces you to do one thing or the other. And it, it leads to a life of hopelessness in some cases. And because of that, I'm, I'm quite passionate about the subject. Look at Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Now, Jeremiah witnessed this, and, and now God is going to tell him, here's the lesson I want you to learn from this. Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Yes, he can. The potter has power over the clay. Watch how he says it. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? Watch the first word in verse 8. If. It's conditional. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Now look at this. God had a plan in His mind of how He's going to destroy them. He sends His word. It's a, it's a word of warning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy you. And if that nation repents, God says, Okay, I'll change my plan. You can change the mind of God. Verse 9, And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it? Who's going to prosper the nation? Verse 10, If it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. You see, God says, I'm going to react to the choices you're making. Now, with that in mind, let's come back to Romans 9. God certainly has power to make a vessel unto honor and a vessel unto dishonor. Absolutely. That does not remove the free will of the man. Verse 22, What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory? God had already de decided, before those people ever showed up, that these righteous people, right, these people to whom I have sworn, I have promised them, I have prepared mercy for them. I have prepared this kingdom for them. And God, allowing the wicked people to make their choices, He puts up with it. Not because God likes what they're doing. Right? Sentence against... How does, how does Solomon word that in Ecclesiastes 8? Be, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So God puts up with it. Men think, well, God must not mind it. No, no. God 
He detests that wickedness, but he puts up with it because he knows eventually I am going to abundantly help and bless and show mercy to this group and I will bring down wrath and destruction on the other group and God is going to receive glory in both manners. In both manners. Let me give you a few examples where this has happened. The Jews in Egypt, that's obvious, right? With Pharaoh. God put up with Pharaoh's hardness of heart and then eventually destroyed them. Another time, Jesus on the cross. God allowed those wicked, hard-hearted Pharisees, scribes, chief rulers to cry out. They, they stirred up the crowd, away with Him, crucify Him. And God allowed His Son to go through that brutal beating that He did. And God allowed it. He put up with it. He was patient, long-suffering. But then, of course, third day, vindicated Jesus by raising Him from the dead. And eventually, one day when Jesus comes back, right, the enemies of the cross, they get destroyed. And then I'll tell you another way in which this is applicable. And I think immediately applicable to Paul's crowd to whom he's writing. These Christians are being persecuted. They are the vessels of mercy. But it sure doesn't feel like it when the Roman soldiers are whipping them, when they're being fed to lions in the Colosseum, when they're being burned alive. It doesn't feel like mercy. And Paul's explaining that God, you've got to look at it through a, a, a long lens. You've got to have the long look. That God puts up with the wickedness because one day He's going to make it very clear how wicked they were and how righteous the other group was. Verse 24, notice how Paul's going to shift now. Even us whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So Paul, he's been, he's been focusing on how God's operating with Israel. He's now going to bring the Gentiles into the picture as well. That yes, this was true in the Old Testament the Jewish nation, but even the Gentiles now are having a legitimate offer given to them to be included as a vessel of mercy, to be included in God's foreordained plan and, and this election that calls us to uh, holiness and to be unblameable and everything. I, I'll, Garrett said it very well. Please refer back to his notes on that. In verse 25, as he saith also in Osea, now we would say Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. That's Hosea 2 verse 23 is what he's quoting there. And I would even say he's using a little bit of chapter 3 verse 1, Hosea 3 1. Uh, but I'll let you look at the cross-reference later for that. Verse 26, It shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. That's Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. So Paul goes back to the Old Testament, to the prophet Hosea, pulls out a couple verses that shows Gentiles will be included in the plan. Now he's using these verses to support the idea that a group that was not, that was, they were not referred to as God's people, now they are considered beloved in God's people. That fits our, the current situation of Gentiles. Right? That fits. But when you look at these cross-references, you'll see Hosea 1, Hosea 2, Hosea 3 has nothing to do with Gentiles. Paul is, and he, you know that he does this, he grabbed these verses out of their context. It supports well the point he's making that people not beloved, not called God's people, they 
can be included in the plan. You go back and look at it. This is actually talking about Israel and how God got divorced. He divorced them and one day will regather them, bring them back. Verse uh, 27, I'm sorry. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. And now he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. So God, in the New Testament now, He's bringing, He's extended this offer of mercy to Gentiles. And they can be called God's people. Does that mean He's completely done with Israel? No. Verse 27-28, Paul's emphasizing, even though Israel is being punished because of what they did to the Messiah, there is still going to be some Jews saved. A remnant shall be saved. God, it says in verse 28, He'll finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. The Lord, Because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. I believe, if you go back and look in Isaiah, I believe that's a reference to the tribulation time, to be, to be honest. I think that's the primary application of it. However, Paul, I don't think he knew how long the church age would be nor do any of us for that matter, not precisely. And I think he's talking about this short time between the the, the coming down of the Holy Spirit and the rapture. He, Paul, if I understand correctly, he's referring to that. There's going to be this short gap of time and eventually the Lord will cut that time short by taking the body of Christ out. But some Jews will be included in that plan. We know, though, in the tribulation time that the Antichrist is going to turn on Israel and try to destroy all of them. The Lord will come back before the Antichrist can do that and cut the, cut the work short and thereby save the nation of Israel that, that on a na- national basis. But even in this day and age in which we live, this church age, there are still some Jews that get saved. By the time you see Romans 11, you'll see Paul's making that exact point. That just because God has temporarily turned His back and blinded the the eyes of the Jews, that doesn't mean that individually they cannot repent and and get saved. And verse 29, And as Isaiah said before, now he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verse 9. The reason he would say Isaiah said before, that's because the cross-reference he just gave was from Isaiah 10. Now he's going back to Isaiah chapter 1. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Saboath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. That is completely wiped out. Sodom and Gomorrah, gone. The Lord, though, left us a seed. So Paul's showing that even though God punishes Israel, God will never completely and utterly extinguish that nation. Why? Because of their behavior? No, because God made a promise to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the nation of Israel, they're chosen, that they will have the kingdom. God honors His promise. You know why you're going to make it to heaven? This is how we go from dealing as a nation. We can learn something from that example as to how God deals with us as individuals. I have eternal life because of God's promise, not because of my behavior. Now, this word, set, set, 
Sabaoth. Sabaoth. I've heard it pronounced various ways. I'm going with Sabaoth. I hope that's right. Uh, it shows up twice in the New Testament. Here and also in James chapter 5 and verse 4. If you, now, you don't even need a dictionary to, to learn what this word means. If you go back and look in Isaiah 1 verse 9, it says they're the Lord of hosts. So, Sabaoth is a Hebrew word that means armies or hosts. All right? Uh, the reason, though, that they've left it untranslated, they, they wrote it in, in the, let's say, transliterated it from Hebrew to English here, because Paul put it in the Hebrew. He used the Hebrew word. And that's why the translators have decided to just leave it as a Hebrew distinction here um, and not put it into English. I, I, well, let's say I assume that's why they have done that. But the point that Paul's making, uh, Israel still has a seed. They're not completely wiped out. Now Paul concludes the chapter with this point, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness... right? Gentile culture was not based on let's try to do right. It was based on um, let's try to have fun. Let's, let's try to feel good at anybody's expense, you know. That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. The offer that God gives to the Gentiles, to the world, right? Is the gift of God through Jesus Christ and the, all their sins can be washed away and they can be perfectly righteous in God's sight and overcome sin. Not just the penalty, but the power of sin. And they obtained this because they believed God's promise. They, they got it by faith. And there's an irony that Paul is pointing out here. The Gentiles, which couldn't care less about righteousness, they found God's perfect righteousness. They did it through faith. Verse 31, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness... Right? They were given the law in the Old Testament, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. So they had this great revelation from God, but they couldn't live up to it. Verse 32, wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were... I'm Forgive me, I worded, sounded that wrong. Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Where did Israel mess up? They messed up because they thought that the law was all they needed. They thought that the law was a final work. They didn't recognize its temporary nature. That the law was meant to bring them to the Messiah, and then the Messiah fulfills everything prophesied in the law and in the prophets, and then they can receive full righteousness in Him. The Jews didn't see that. So when the Messiah showed up, they clung to their law and said, Shame on you, you're full of the devil, you're breaking the Sabbath. And they chose to hang on to their version of the law and their lack of keeping it instead of taking the Messiah. Verse 32 at the end, For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written. And he's going to quote Isaiah 28, verse 6. Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Now, those are apt descriptions for Jesus. Not because He wants people to stumble, not because he wants people to be offended, but God, know, he knew beforehand how some people would react to the coming of Christ. This is why Jesus said when he was on the earth that in, in a house you'll have it divided, three against two or two against three, the mother against the, the daughter, the father against the son. 
Why? Because some people will choose to follow the Messiah, some won't. So it's an apt description, but it's certainly not God's plan A. But God knew that this would, this would be a fitting way to refer to him. I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That is, you will never regret coming to Christ. You'll never regret it. You won't get to Christ and go, Oh, man, forgive me. This is a South African term. I know you guys use it very loosely. Shame. I I'm so ashamed of myself for coming to Christ. You, people don't say that. They don't do that. They come to Christ, and if they've j had a genuine experience with Him, they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They're not offended at Him. They believe that He's precious, and they treat Him as such. All right, we have made it through Romans chapter 9, so we're going to stop there for the evening. Um, I only saw a couple messages come through, so I'm going to restart this quickly just to see if there's any questions. This is your chance to slip one in real quick. I hope, I hope that we've dealt with the uh, passage thoroughly. I hope that if you had some questions about it that they got answered. But if you do have questions you'd like to ask me privately, please feel free to contact me. Let me restart this, and if there are no questions, we'll pray. All right. Thank you, Juliet. Actually, Christina beat you to it. She just knocked on the door and reminded me that I did not give the attendance code. But thank you. I appreciate you reminding me. It's Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 9. Ezekiel 14 and 9. So that is a good question. I don't see any others, so let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening for allowing us to go through this. Uh, it is a difficult passage, Lord, but I believe it teaches a very rich lesson. It teaches us about your nature. It teaches us, God, that, that we do have a choice, and we need to be very careful about what we choose to believe and, and, and how we behave. Father, we want to fall in line where there is hardness in our hearts, Lord, please give us another chance. Be patient with us. Lord, you, you commanded us to humble ourselves. Help us, Lord, to do that because we just want to get it right. That's what we want to do, Lord. We want to put a smile on your face, whatever it takes. Father, please have your hand upon these, these folks that have tuned in and listened tonight. Help them to use this information for your glory. And Father, please, might we be emboldened to go out, even though we know some people might be offended and stumble at the message of Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful at giving them that legitimate offer to repent and come to you. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.